It's uh, an honor to introduce uh, uh, Greg Healy. We're uh, good, really good friends. And uh, Greg, it was Greg actually that introduced me uh, to uh, the 10 Days Ministry. Um, Greg, you are carrying perhaps one of the most misunderstood and challenging pieces in this Reformation, which is financial reform. And uh, we're really excited today for you to unpack that further to us. And um, we just ask a, a, a blessing, um, blessing on, on your teaching. I um, just one more thing. Uh, when Greg shared this message with me in 2014, um, my eyes were opened. I came under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and over these last few years, the Lord has really began to lead me into a new place because of what uh, Greg is is carrying and the insight and revelation for us to really come out from being the under under the influence of Babylon financially. And uh, uh, so I again don't want to steal your thunder just to introduce you, brother, and uh, we love you dearly you're one of our leaders here at 10 days and uh, we bless you hey thank you grant and um i missed alan earlier because i had to uh be elsewhere but uh did he mention the fourfold repentance of uh turning away from god sexual immorality um shedding of innocent blood and greed did he say those four things Okay, so this is perfect because I'm the greed part of what Alan was talking about in a sense. And I want to expand on that because it's not just greed, although, and I'm also going to use some of the scriptures uh, of Revelation 2 and 3 that Alan brought up because I think that's a good starting point as well. And if you look at uh, Revelation 2, let's just have a quick look at the message to Pergamum, and Jesus says, but I have a few things against you because you have some there among you who are holding to the corrupt teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, enticing them to eat things that have been sacrificed to idols and commit acts of sexual immorality. So one of the big issues we have in our world today is greed. Um, and I would also say, especially for people who are Christians, we have to self-examine. We have to ask God, are we complicit in some of these areas? And if you were like me prior to going, prior to going through a lot of the financial trials that we as a family have been through, you might have thought that, hey, I'm not a greedy person. I, you know, I'm very generous. I give, I tithe, I um, make a good income. Um, <clears throat> but the issue that I didn't see was the other side of greed, which is fear and fear of your financial future. So when we started going through troubles and we didn't have the money to cover things, that's when fear rose its ugly head, which is very closely connected to greed under the overall principality of mammon. Okay, so back to why am I reading the Pergamum passage? Because Jesus is saying to his end times church, for us to become prepared 
ready to enter into the troubles coming to the earth, but then also the Lord's return, we have to come out of any of these behaviors that we may not even be aware of. And Balaam was described in the Bible as what? He was described as greedy. You remember that? I think it's a passage also in Peter, because he wanted to get paid to curse the Israel, and then later sold his consulting services, which is what this is talking about, about enticing the Israelites to commit sin, and then the hedge gets lifted. This is also Alan was talking about. When the hedge of protection gets lifted by God because the people of God are sinning, then Satan has free reign to come in and cause trouble, or the enemy in this case. Um, so he taught Balak. Balak was Israel's enemy. <clears throat> so this, this matter of sexual immorality is not only the physical sexual immorality, but do you know uh, that God uses sexual immorality as a symbolic language in the word for any acts of unfaithfulness or unrighteousness before him? For example, when Ezra was the great reformer, when the people of Israel were coming out of Babylon and they were rebuilding Jerusalem, they were rebuilding the walls, they were rebuilding the temple, he called the people into account to the word of God. And one of the critical areas that he called people into account of is, hey, you have to divorce from those foreign wives because that's not right in the sight of God. He says, only marry those who are Jewish. And what that represents symbolically is you can't be married to Babylon. You can't be married to a harlot. You can't be married to another because when we are, we're under all of the curses of the same. When you fast forward to Revelation 18, which is really what Jonathan's phrase when he first heard the vision of 10 days, he heard the phrase, Babylon refuses to mourn, but my people will mourn before I return, says Jesus. And so the question for us in, in the church, the question for us as Christians is, are we still married to some of the foreign wives? Are we still participating in the world's way of, of economic systems that are against God's way. One of the things we've got to do to dispel some myths up front, because people may respond, but Greg, we're not greedy and we just do good business and we invest in the markets and we're good citizens and we don't cheat, lie, or steal or kill anybody. What's wrong with that? Well, the issue of what's wrong with that is if you read Revelation 18, it is a full description of the global economic equation that the United States has principally exported since World War II. So the US dollar and how commerce works across the globe, the stock markets, the banking system. But Greg, what's wrong with the stock markets? What's wrong with the banking system? Those are just utilities. That's just free will, people trading, price discovery. The problem is no one will deny that the stock market trades and all of the financial markets trade based on two factors. Bitcoin trades on these two factors. What are they? We know what they are. Everyone says fear and greed drives these markets up down. Bitcoin 65,000, no, it's 30,000. No, it's 70,000. No, it's 10,000. What is going on? Why is this thing all over the place? It's because we're greedy and then we're all afraid we're gonna lose our profits. And that's what drives those markets. Now, another thing to dispel is our banking system. 
But Greg, the Federal Reserve has been around for over 100 years. It protects the people. It prevents bank failures. Look at what happened in the financial crisis. It prevented that. Look at what happened in the coronavirus. It prevented that by helping the system. But the problem with the Federal Reserve banking system, which, by the way, backs up all of those financial markets worldwide, um, is that it exploits the poor. It treats the poor exactly the opposite to what the Bible says uh, we should do. The, the banking system, and if you bank somewhere, you're a part of that system. And if you invest somewhere, you're a part of the system. So the, the issue is we have to come to a point of separation. We've got to wrestle with God. What does that look like? It's a transitionary thing, but it's coming into the understanding and back to our banking system. Guess who can't ever get a loan? The poorest people. They're the unbanked. They're never helped. Now, the next poorest people are called subprime. That means you're below prime in terms of your credit rating. Um, you've probably heard about subprime. You may be subprime in your credit score. By the way, a credit score is like a control mechanism that's very depersonalized that evaluates people's Babylonian character about whether or not they are good at repaying their debts, but more importantly, whether or not they're good debtors, meaning they like to borrow a lot of money. Your credit score is higher the more money you borrow. All right, back to the banking system. The, the worst people that are treated in the banking system are the subprime borrowers. Uh, also people who are poor who don't have much money to deposit in their accounts. They get charged the highest fees. They're charged overdraft fees. They're charged a higher interest for their loans, much higher um, than people who are rich. So basically, I'm not a communist when I say that our banking system and our financial services system rewards the rich and it oppresses the poor. It's true. It really does. It's not because just of the, the greed only. It's because it oppresses people by charging them physically more for the same services. Um, if you ever get in trouble, for example, and you have to fall back into the legal system to deal with, like, I can't pay a debt, something happened, and that's part of my testimony, what happens is the, those big financial institutions that are nameless and faceless, they come after you, and they have no concern or compassion for your situation, or let's say you have a medical problem. Let's say you have a a disruption to your to your business. All these problems are not taken into account by the system. And the system has become more and more robotized, more de depersonalized. Now let's take this into, uh, that's, that's kind of the background. Now why is um, our banking system, our financial markets, and I would also include capitalism, which worships capital as number one. In capitalism, the definition of it is if I have money, then the others have to serve my money and earn my return. So in a capitalistic system, we may think, oh, this is great. This is American and apple pie. But unfortunately, what the version of that has been created today is it just makes money the most important thing. And Jesus said over and over again, if money's your God, then money's your God. You can't serve God and mammon. And when you serve money as the top priority, you are uh, effectively, whether you realize it or not, you are, you've, you've made either money a, co a competition with God 
or you might have even made it higher than God's influence. And this could be either for greed's sake or fear's sake. You know, if you fear your financial future, you might say, hey, I need to move to this place or that place because I've got to, you know, crunch my numbers and save money. And, and if we make decisions like that based on our financial input, based on the what money says, like, well, gee, you may not be able to make it if you only have your social security and you only have this income or that income. So you better move to XYZ town. It's cheaper there. But the question is, did God ever say to go to XYZ town? Or did he say, stay where you are, I'll provide for you. So all the promises of the Bible um, for biblical economy are a blessing. There's no idea that debt is a good thing. In our structure, the more debt you have, the more you're rewarded. The richer you are, the more you're rewarded. In God's system, he said, blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who have little, like the woman with two mites, because she gave everything. She's trusting God for her next day's meal, affair, or maybe even accommodation. And that's living a life of Matthew 6.33, which is seek first the kingdom of God and righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. So we in the Western church, we in the wealthy nations like the church of Lycia, Laodicea in Revelation 3, what did it say about Laodicea? It says, hey, we have all of, all of what we need. We have plenty of money. Uh, we've got great technology with this eye salve. We have other ways of taking care of things. And God is saying to Laodicea, wait a minute, you are poor spiritually, though you are rich. If you want to be rich, buy the gold refined in fire. So what Jesus is saying is there is stop depending on yourself and your money and your economic power, or maybe even your military power, and start depending and trusting in me and me alone. Because there will be coming days where those things will fade away, pass away, and money will fail, or armies will fail, or <clears throat> these ideas of self-help will fail, and the only thing available to the believer will be God himself. And in the same way we believe in the supernatural things for God to heal, for God to prophesy, for words of knowledge, we also need to believe God for the supernatural provision, even with or without money. Money, yes, is a tool, just like the stock market, but when spirits get attached to it and start speaking to us, we need to be very careful because is that the voice of God or is that the voice of mammon? Because when money matters start talking to us like, hey, I really need to go to that city. Uh, hey, why don't you and I go to that city and we'll make a profit for the year? And they're rebuked, I think, by James. Um, hey, why are you talking about making a profit over that city? Your life is but dust. You should be asking God, what is it that you have for me? Not about how you're going to make those plans for yourself. And this is the same thing that we as Christians in America or Christians in the Western church, Christians who are in, in, um, in a lot of the moneyed um, countries of the world, we especially have to ask ourselves, do we trust ourselves or do we trust God? Do we trust our money or do we trust God? Do we trust um, the power of money or do we trust the power of God? Um, all right, let's take this just out of the economics discussion and the business realm. Let's take it into the ministry realm. So you might say, hey, Greg, that's great. I'm not even in business. I don't have anything in the markets. Uh, I'm a missionary. I work 
overseas. I am, I'm a missionary in the United States. I'm a prayer missionary. And so for, for those who are um, in ministry and missions, we may not have the issue of, of, of manipulating, say, these markets or being rich and oppressing the poor, but we might have the issue that we feel compelled, maybe not by a spirit of God, to go fundraise or do something for God to make a way to fund the ministry that must continue. And we've kind of oftentimes, I've found, we've come up with a rationalization for why this is a good practice. You know, it's good stewardship. If I didn't ask everybody for money, then there's no way that good people of Honduras or India would ever get fed. So the question we've got to ask ourselves in ministry is if we're spending way too much time in fundraising, and many of the big ministry heads spend 50% of their time fundraising, the question is, is that God who's requiring it of us, or is that another voice that says, I need to make that budget, and the only way this thing will continue and this machine will go forward is if I fund it with enough money. When we do that, we're thinking upside down. We're thinking, I'm a servant of God. I've got to help him. It's good stewardship. I need to go raise this money on my own strength because God will bless those who bless themselves. God will help those who help themselves. None of this is scriptural. If you look at the work of the apostles, if you look at the life of Jesus, there was no fundraising for their ministry. The fundraising we see in the Bible was about what? It was about helping the poor, someone else, not me and my ministry, Jerusalem, the widows and the orphans, the poor. That's what, whenever there was any fundraising activity, it was never in the self-interest out of financial fear. It was always in the God interest to help provide resources for those who are in need and are help and need help. Okay, so what we've also got to realize is that we've kind of created these artificial walls of separation in America, in the Western church, in Europe, in other countries that have wealth, whereby we've convinced ourselves that, hey, if you're in business, your job is to make that money. And if you're in ministry, your job is to do the ministry. And then you need to go ask the rich people for money because they're going to fund that ministry. And essentially you have this, we don't really care about how you made your money, just as long as you're generous and give us the money then we, that we need. So we'll come and solicit you. We'll set up uh, events that'll make you, know, you happy. We'll wine you and dine you. We will, we will show you uh, the great things that are happening in our ministry. And we will then end up begging you or asking you for this money. And so we create this artificial wall of separation. Instead of the kingdom of God being holistic, it's then separated. It's like a barbell. It's like, okay, well, Greg, you're the wealthy guy from Wall Street, so you just fund these things. Take the guy who recently just fell from grace, you know. Uh, his name is Bill Ayers, I think, or maybe getting his last, Bill Wang, I think, maybe getting his last name wrong, but he was a tiger cub which is a hedge fund, and that's the industry that I came out of, hedge fund industry. And he had this concept that I'm going to utilize the markets and God is going to cause me to have these investments, and then I'm going to use all that money and give it to Christian causes. That was very similar to my going in assumption about how God looked at things. But then God got a hold of me and said, I care more, Greg, about 
how you make your money in your business affairs and your finance than what you do with it once you make it. So we have to get out of this notion of capitalism, which is, hey, we just do whatever we need to do in business because business is like war. Business is like love. It's like all's fair and love and war. So we just do whatever we need to to make that money. Um, and then what we, once we get it, well, then we're good. We're benevolent and we do this and that. If we're George Soros, we might be benevolent towards the things that we like, which we would say is wickedness. But whatever the issue, we're creating this artificial separation. So anyway, what is the solution to a lot of these issues? The solution is the church has to take back the inheritance of the saints. The inheritance of the saints is to trust God, not money. And even if you don't have any money, God can make a way. He can literally create something from nothing. He's creator God. But we often doubt that today. We don't have faith for that today. You have a few places on the earth where people have enough faith to see food multiplied like Jesus did at the fishes and the loaves and feeding the people. Uh, Heidi Baker is one that we might know that in Mozambique, when they didn't have any money, they saw their food grow and multiply. And there are various testimonies you'll hear of this, but it's it's pretty scattered here and there. It's not like, say, prophecy, which is an exercised gift all throughout the earth now, uh, or even healing, where we see physical healing all throughout the earth now. The financial miracles are very rare. The provisional miracles are much rarer. And so we have to recover this inheritance. We have to say, hey, if the economy blew up, you, we all should ask ourselves, if the ATM machine didn't work tomorrow, and you can't get your money out of the bank, what would you do? And how would you feel? Would you feel like panicked? Would you feel like, what, you know, how am I gonna deal with this? Well, maybe you're a prepper and you have everything stored that you need and you have like money uh, stuffed in cans or something. Okay, so maybe you might have some period of time's provision. Um, but if you're not, you're gonna start worrying and be concerned. But when we start to learn and trust God, and he will make a way when we, when we have no money, what's got, what my testimony is that God shows up, he makes provision. He could put gas in our tank, food in our cupboards. He could put uh, oil in our heaters. God can make a way. He could provide housing when we feel like we don't have any housing or we're being evicted from housing. Um, God can make a way. When we rediscover that and trust God anew and afresh, we are coming out of Babylon because what we're doing is we're unplugging from the one system, the system that's money centric, and we're plugging into the kingdom system, which does not depend on money. It could use it, but it doesn't depend on it. It doesn't make money the critical path. It doesn't elevate it to where capitalism, which is, hey, it's the top dog. Like we have no room to talk about religion, but we do need to make money for our shareholders. That's when it becomes a, an idol, a false god. When we take that down uh, a notch and say, hey, I can trust God with or without money, and we can enter, start entering into that and enter into it into practice, making decisions by faith rather than by financial uh, measure, then we start coming out of Babylon. Now, the other thing we could take back as the church, and I've got two minutes left here, is we could take back what we've seeded away. We have outsourced the banking system. We've outsourced the financial markets. We've outsourced business and commerce, and we never had to. The whole idea of coming into business and commerce God's way 
is meant to be an evangelistic tool, a way of saying, hey, world, you know, it's like when St. Patrick, for example, went into the pagan territories of Ireland, he brought in apostolic teams and they planted themselves what are today termed monasteries, but they were just local communities. But those local communities thrived and had their own economy. They had their own businesses, they had their own farming, they had their own way of working together with one another. They didn't outsource it to a big box store. They didn't outsource it to the almighty dollar. They did it in community together. And then they invited the Irish into their community and say, hey, come taste and see. You know, you don't, we're not saying you need to be a Christian to receive the goodness, but you could be a part of what we're doing and, and try it. And this is like an evangelistic tool that we've lost also as the church. So we've got to take back those businesses. We've got to have community types of banking that are not under the fear and greed and oppress the poor system. We need, and we can do this. We can take these things back as Christians, not in the Babylonian way, not in the way of the stock market of fear and greed, not in the way of the Federal Reserve and the U.S. dollar, but in the ways of God. There are ways to do this. So I'm going to wrap up by saying, and let's pray, that we, as we come out of these things and enter into what God has for us, we have to be awakened to the fact that, whoa, we may be in Babylon and we never knew it. And we've got to take action to do it differently. I would encourage you guys to check out newbreed.co, which is the website we use for this ministry uh, of financial reform and financial justice and coming out of Babylon, but then also to implement, well, what do we enter into? What are these alternative banking structures? What are these alternative ways of doing business that are not money-focused, they're, they're people-focused? Um, so I encourage you to think about that. Also, we do a prayer on Mondays, uh, noontime Eastern. So if you have a heart to pray for financial reformation, if you have a heart to pray for people coming out of Babylon and the church coming out of these financial um, Balaam structures, come pray with us, uh, Global Family Prayer, Mondays at noon, and we can go from there. Then Wednesdays, we have a training, and we can also get you an implementation teams if you're interested in building out some of these local community banks and, um, and, and economy. All right, Greg, so. Greg. Yes. Give us three main things to focus on with repentance in this area. Um, I'll give you the two things that God told me, and maybe there's a third there. We'll just pray about it in a second. So when we were going through our financial crisis, the Lord was wanting me not to take things into my own hands. So the first thing is we have to repent of turning to our own hands to earn our way out of a problem or create something that helps us instead of trusting in God. In other words, to, to come out of Babylon, part of it has to be like, I have to be able to trust God instead of first trusting myself in my own hands. So that's part of it. Um, another part of it was don't go into more debt, which was another way of trusting in my own hands to deal with financial problems uh, or to deal with other debts. And they have, you know, when the, when the bill man comes and you can't pay the bills, the temptation is, well, maybe my credit's still good so I can get out another temporary loan or a line of credit and I'll pay those bills now and I'll do this and that. Don't do that. Resist the temptation to go into further debt 
because God wants to take you out of debt. It's a form of slavery. So self-effort, you got to come out of solving the problem yourself. You got to trust God and uh, come out of debt. And then the third thing was um, you've got to pray. So if we pray and turn to the Lord in those circumstances, instead of our own hands, or it could be other man. So friends, family, Hey, you know, can you spare a dime? I'm in a rough spot. Like, please help me out. Please, please. God says the righteous people's children never beg for bread. So you've got to recognize, like, what does that mean? Well, God is saying pray. If you've ever heard of a guy named George Mueller, he's a minister from England who was around, he's originally German in the 1800s. And he practiced this, which is a rare practice, which is instead of asking man for financial help building his ministry, he said, God, you told me to do this ministry. I'm going to turn to you and I'm going to pray. And when we pray and we trust, not in another, sort of say, okay, I have my plan B. I have my emergency plan B. No, you got to put the plan B away. You got to turn to God and pray. Don't use your own hands or go to other men for help. Go to God. And then what we realize is that the covenant blessings come into effect. It may feel very traumatic even at first. That's okay. It will become, you'll become more and more able to walk on the water, if you will, financially, or fly in the air and defy financial gravity because God can do it. So that's, those are the three things I would say.